Colossians chapter 2, and our text this morning will be starting in verse 6, and will take us through verse 10. Please listen as God's word is read to us this morning. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would direct our hearts to your truth and open our minds and our hearts to receive and believe your truth. Strengthen faith this morning and awaken and create faith where it does not exist. We pray that you would do this by your spirit and through your word. Amen. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through Colossians now for several weeks, and we are now to this point in chapter 2. And if you think of the little book of Colossians, this letter, as a gourmet meal, then what starts here in verse 6 and goes on through chapter 4, verse 6, is the main course. This is really the heart of Paul's letter. It's the reason why he wrote this book to these people who lived in Colossae, the people who were part of the church there. And it also marks a turning point of sorts where Paul, who's been introducing himself and reminding us of what is true, now begins to directly exhort us and tell us what it is that we must do. To this point, he's been rehearsing for them the glory and the supremacy of Christ, like we saw in chapter 1. He has shared with them about his joy, that his joy is their faith in Christ. He is thankful for them, thankful that they've received the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ. He's spoken to them about his ministry and his message, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, and told us it is him It is Christ that we proclaim. And he's informed us that his goal for the people he serves and loves and ministers to is spiritual maturity, that he would be able to present every man, every woman, every child as mature in Christ. He's also shared with them his concern that as they are on this track, this path to spiritual maturity, having begun by faith in Christ, he's concerned that they might be deluded by plausible arguments. We saw that in verse 4 last week of chapter 2. Deluded by plausible arguments that are not according to Christ. So to this point, chapter 1 and the first several verses of chapter 2, it's all been an extended introduction. And now having rehearsed what is true, now he tells us what it is we must do. Now he moves to explicit exhortation. And he gives us two Commands here, two different commands. One is in verse 6, the other in verse 8. And the point of our text this morning is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down as sort of the big idea of this text and therefore the big idea of this sermon. And here's the central point. Spiritual life is found only and always in Christ. Spiritual life is found only and always in Christ. And in light of this reality, two important priorities emerge. There's two specific instructions that Paul gives us in light of this truth that spiritual life is found only and always 
in Christ. The first priority in verses 6 and 7 is that we need to renew a Christ-centered focus. We need a renewed focus on Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul reminds them here of how their spiritual life began. How did it begin? It did, not be, it did not begin when they started doing good works. It did not begin when they cleaned their life up. It began when they received Christ. They received him as Lord. Back in chapter 1, he told them that he rejoices to hear, in verse 4, of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is what Epaphras, this co-worker of Paul, had proclaimed to them. The gospel is something that Paul calls in chapter 1, verse 7, the word of truth. The gospel is the message about Christ, that he is the son of God, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to take the place of guilty sinners, to bear their punishment, and then rose again, triumphing over death in the grave so that eternal life could be had by all who believe in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And this good news had been received with joyful faith by these people at this church in Colossae, which meant that they received not only what Jesus did for them, but Paul describes it here that they actually received Jesus himself. You can't separate the gospel from the person of Christ. You can't separate the work of Christ from the person of Christ. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We who have been saved, those of us who have eternal life, who can sing those songs that we sang this morning with joyful confidence, are those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. And this confession of Christ as Lord seems to have been a standard confession in the early church. In Romans 10 verse 9, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then what's the result? You tell me if you know the text. You will be saved. This confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is far more than simply admitting the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, although that is included in this confession. But more than that, this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is a personal affirmation that you believe Christ is supreme over all. That you believe in the preeminence of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And beyond that, it is a personal commitment to submit to his kingship. You see, the, de the demons believe that Jesus is the Lord in the sense that they know he is supreme. They know he has all power. But to receive him as Lord means to personally bow the knee to Christ, to submit to his kingship. So salvation, Paul reminds them, begins with the reception of grace, grace that comes to us in the person of Christ. We receive the message about Christ, the truth of the gospel. We receive the grace of Christ, which includes the forgiveness of our sins through the cross. But it also means receiving Christ as Lord. We receive him as the rightful ruler over our lives, that he is not just the Lord, but that he is our Lord. Those who trust in Jesus as Savior 
are those who also recognize and submit to him as Lord. And so get what Paul's saying when he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. There is something about the way that they began, something about the way that they entered into the Christian life through faith in Christ as Lord that is to be an ongoing part of how they continue in their Christian walk. This trust in Christ, dependence on Christ, faith in Christ, and submission to Christ is to be part of their ongoing life in Christ. Paul gives us the first imperative of this letter. It's the first time he's told us, told them to do something. He says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You see, the truths that Paul has been teaching us over the last chapter plus, these truths come loaded with imperatives, with commands. And though Paul has hinted at them before, now he makes it crystal clear what we must do in light of who Jesus is and in light of what Jesus has done in us and for us. The key phrase here in verse 6 is these two little words that for us come at the end of the sentence, in him, in him. This is actually the 12th time in the book of Colossians that Paul has referred to us being in him, in Christ. This is the realm in which we as Christians live. Our faith is in Christ. We are, as we will see, standing upon Christ, and our life is to be a life that is lived in Christ. This word for walk is just a a metaphor to refer to all of life, not just how we put one foot in front of the other, but how we live each day, how we go through each week, how each year, each decade piles up. It is to be all with reference to who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. You see, all that God intends for us to experience will only be experienced if we cling to Jesus. Our life must be in him. Not just our salvation at the beginning, but all the life that continues on from that point. Spiritual life, as we said earlier, is found only and always in Christ. So what does this mean? What does it look like to walk in him? What is this kind of life that Paul urges us to live? Well, he gives us a description. Several words here in verse 7 describe what it looks like to live this kind of life. Verse 7 says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, Paul, I, I think he's a good teacher. He's a wise and godly teacher and God's giving him these truths to give us. He's not telling us to do something and then not showing us what it looks like. Uh, it can be frustrating. Maybe, maybe some of you who are kids who've had a parent tell you to go do something, you say, but I have no idea how to do that, right? A good parent will show his kids, here's what I want you to do and how to do it. Maybe some of you have a boss who said, I want you to go do this. You say, I don't know how to do that. Show me and I'll be glad to do it. Well, Paul tells us here what it looks like to live this kind of life. First, he says, we are, the, the life that is in Christ is to be rooted in him, rooted in him. Paul said earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 10, that he's thankful that, that there is fruit in their life. They are bearing fruit. And if they're to continue bearing fruit, Paul knows, then deep roots in the gospel are essential, rooted in him. When you go out and look at a tree out here in the state of Kansas, our very windy state of Kansas, do you know why most of the time those trees don't get blown over unless a tornado comes or some sort of microburst? Why do you think the trees don't get blown over? You can, say, you can answer. There's roots. 
Typically, there's more underground even than what you see above ground. Roots anchor us and provide life and stability. And Paul says that we are to be rooted in him. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me dwells, lives, depends on me. And I in him, if I'm dwelling in you, Jesus says, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what the psalmist referred to in Psalm 1, that the blessed man is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Paul reminds us that the life that is lived in him, in Christ, that is submitted to Christ and dependent on Christ, is a life that is deeply rooted in Christ. Faith, reliance, dependence that goes deep into the truth of Christ. But it's interesting here, the tense of this word indicates that we're not supposed to become rooted. He says that this is, this is an, the tense here indicates this is a permanent state, something that actually happened in the past and must have ongoing continual results. So really the implication here is, is not that we need to become rooted. That's not the emphasis here. The indication is that we need to stay where we're planted. We need to remain rooted in Christ. We've been planted here, and this is where we need to stay. Spiritual life is found only and always in Christ. So it makes sense that we need to approach Christ not as a resource for little spiritual pit stops when we need it. You know, a little spiritual rest stop along the highway where you've got a vending machine and bathroom and, you know, stretch your legs out. No, we approach Christ as the soil in which we must remain planted. Our life depends on him, and we have been planted there. We need to remain. The life that is lived in Christ is one that is deeply rooted in him. But he goes on and says we're not just deeply rooted in Christ. We are to be built up in him. So while being rooted is something that happened in the past, this word being built up describes an ongoing process, something that's happening in the present. And this is something that can be pursued in faith. You see, the truth of Christ is the foundation upon which we are being built up like a building. The, the word here for built up has the same root word as the word for a house. We're being built up. The, the, the renovation project is ongoing. And our foundation is Christ. We're fully resting on him. So we fully depend on him, being rooted in Christ. We're fully resting and standing on him. Jesus is not an accessory to our lives, but the soil in which we are planted and the foundation upon which we stand. I love the hymn we sing on occasion, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Sinking sand. There is no other foundation upon which we can be built up. But he keeps going. We are to be rooted in him, built up in him, and third, established in the faith, just as you were taught. The word established here means being strengthened. And this also is to be an ongoing, continual experience. This is what Paul wants for them. They, they receive this life in Christ, and they, they experience the transformed heart that comes when you trust in the gospel 
Paul says, I want you to get stronger. I want you to be continually built up. I want you to stay planted in that truth so that it continues to change you and bring you to maturity. And notice what Paul says. He he doesn't say that he wants us to be established in our faith, established in your faith. Some translations may say that, but a, a more literal, better translation is the faith, not your faith. He wants us and them to be established in the faith. In the faith refers not to that subjective faith that we possess, the, the, our reliance on Christ, although that is important and we do want that kind of faith to be strengthened. But he's saying he wants us to be strengthened in the faith. This refers not to our subjective experience of faith, but rather the objective body of truth that we have received, the truth that we believe in. You say, why does that matter? While we do want our faith to be strengthened, Paul's talking about something external to us that we can actually get a stronger grasp on. In Acts 16.5, it says that the churches, as the apostles ministered, were strengthened in the faith as they increased in numbers daily. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Jude 1.3 urges us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is not our subjective experience of how much we're trusting in God. The faith here refers to the collection of truth, the teachings of the gospel that we need to hold on to. We can become strengthened in the faith. We stand on and draw strength from this objective truth of the gospel. Get this, our confidence and our strength as Christians... I'm so thankful for this. It doesn't come from our changing emotions or our fluctuating experiences. Our strength as believers comes from the unchanging word of God. So Paul says, I want you to be established in the faith, to be grounded, to be strengthened in your understanding of and confidence in the revealed truth of God in his word. How can we be so sure that this is what he's referring to? Look what he says next. Established in the faith just as you were taught. We already referenced these verses, but back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Epaphras had come. He'd shared with them the gospel, which Paul describes as the word of truth, and they had believed. He says, I want you to grow in your understanding of that truth, to remain committed to it, to draw strength from it. Don't ever move on or let go of what you received in Christ. Instead, go deeper. Seek to know and understand his word, the truth, and so be established and grounded in your faith. We could get off on a rabbit trail here, but I'll just put this here and let you think about it, but you're never going to grow beyond your intake and understanding of scripture. If you want to be a strong Christian, you will never grow You'll never outgrow and grow beyond your intake and understanding of Scripture. So maybe we need to change some habits, reshuffle some of our priorities. Because if we are going to be established in the faith, we need to know and understand where the faith is revealed to us, which is God's Word. So let me ask you a question Who do you listen to when it comes to the world? Life. Who forms your thoughts? What forms your attitudes? What forms your opinions? Is it your friends? Is it your favorite news station? Is it social media? 
the movies, the shows, the music that you consume. There's a principle of life and physically that you are what you eat. And the same is true spiritually. And if it's always garbage in, it can only be garbage out. If we're going to be established in the faith, we need to let God's word be the primary shaping force for our thoughts and our opinions and our attitudes and our priorities. Because there's a lot of people out there that would want to shape your priorities and your opinions and your attitudes. But we need to be established in the faith. These three verbs, rooted, built up, and established, are all passive verbs. I don't know if you noticed that. These are all things that are done in us, done for us, things that happen to us, meaning, here's the good news, that we are not the ones who ultimately make this happen. This is something that God does in us as we abide in Christ, as we depend on Christ, as we submit to Christ, as we walk in him, we will experience his ongoing work in us. And how are we to respond as we experience this ongoing work of grace? Well, Paul does get to a verb here that is something we do. Verse 7, we're rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding here means overflowing. This is excessive, ongoing thankfulness. Now, if you're thinking through this with me, thinking logically through this, you might wonder, so why does Paul add in this idea of thankfulness? What does that have to do with what we've been talking about? Is he just slipping this in here for style points? You know, is he like a high school student? Maybe some of you guys have some papers due, and you have a minimum word count, and you're just trying to like, you know, fluff things out just a little bit to hit that bare minimum. There's some honest heads shaking in the room. Okay, that's not what Paul's doing here. Every word matters. Every word has meaning. Every word here is inspired by God and intended for us. And Paul tells us that as we are rooted, built up, and established, that we are to be always giving thanks. It actually makes a lot of sense when we stop and think about this. When you find yourself day by day holding to, clinging to the gracious truth that salvation is something that Christ has accomplished for us. That Christ dwells in us as our hope of glory, like Paul said in chapter 1, verse 27. That in Christ, God's mystery has been revealed to us. Chapter 1, verse 25 through 27. That in Christ, we've received redemption and reconciliation with God. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 22. And that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, chapter 2, verse 3. When you dwell on those truths and receive those truths as good news, you can't help but be thankful. You can't help but be thankful. If there's a lack of gratitude in us, here's what it reveals. Very small thoughts of Christ. A very weak and shallow understanding of his grace towards us. A small appreciation for the magnitude of our salvation and the great cost that Jesus paid on the, on the cross to free us and forgive us of our sins. If you have a complaining heart, a discontent heart, that reveals perhaps an ignorance of or a dismissal of Christ's ongoing work. Such small and infrequent thoughts of God's grace, of, of Christ and his glory, 
that will leave us vulnerable to deceit. It will leave us vulnerable to deception because we might start thinking that maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe we need something more than what Christ has done on the cross. And that's the path to deception. The application here is that we need to renew our focus on Jesus Christ, to learn to lean more fully on him, to hold tightly to him, and to allow his truth and his grace to produce an overflowing gratitude in our hearts. This is something that we need as individuals, something that our families need. This is something that our church needs, is this kind of relentless pursuit of and focus on Christ. Spiritual life is found only and always in Christ. Therefore, we must renew our focus and seek to walk in him. That's the first priority that emerges here, this positive command. But then Paul shares a corresponding truth, sort of the flip side of this coin, a second priority that comes to us in the form of a negative command. So the second point this morning is this. Not only do we need to renew a a Christ-centered focus, but secondly, we need to reject Christless deceptions. We need to reject Christless deceptions. Verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's a warning here. A warning not to be taken captive by false teaching. Paul's alluded to this problem earlier, back in verse 4. He says, I say this, telling us about who Jesus is, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. But now he's ready to deal with this problem face to face, toe to toe, explicitly. And he tells us that Christless error, this false teaching that minimizes or marginalizes Christ will enslave us. It will enslave us. He tells us that in verse 8. He says, see that you are not taken captive. Think about Vikings storming into a town burning down the walls, tying everybody up and hauling them off. That's the imagery here. False teaching is a snare. It enslaves people and places them in bondage. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You know, there's many things that might keep us from following Christ. There's many things that might stunt our growth and undermine our faith. We face threats every day from the world from the flesh and from the devil. But here, Paul is especially concerned about the danger of ideas. Truth claims that are a little bit off that can enslave people and rob them of the freedom and the life that we have in Christ. I want you to notice here, he uses this language of captivity describing the effect that false teaching has on those who believe it. Paul's concerned that more than just, than just that they be correct. We do want to get a good grade on the theology test, yes. But more than that, he wants to protect them from something that's harmful. Something that leads to bondage and robs us of freedom. He's concerned that they would experience a reversal of what he talked about in chapter 1, verse 13. That God, through Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have freedom and life in Christ. We don't want to forfeit that. And Paul says that people will use, specifically, philosophy to try to take us spiritually captive. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by, and here he describes this false teaching. 
He describes it as philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The word philosophy here is, is a combination of two words, the word for love and the word for wisdom. Phileo and, and this word for wisdom, this sophos, this philosophy is the love of wisdom. So the reality is there's many different approaches to philosophy. There's a lot of philosophies out there, a lot of different ways that people pursue truth, a lot of different claims of wisdom, and many of them are contradictory. There's a lot of different ways people try to make sense of the world, try to understand who we are and what our purpose is, a lot of different attempted paths to arrive at truth. And Paul says, beware of philosophy. But does this mean that all philosophy is bad? Is that what Paul is, is teaching us here, that we should avoid philosophy in general, that logic and reason should be chucked out the window in favor of an irrational faith? No, that's not what Paul's teaching. It is not more holy or more spiritual to refuse all philosophy. In fact, you can't actually do that if you step back and think about it. A philosopher named Aristotle, maybe you've heard of him, once said, whether we will philosophize or whether we will not philosophize, we must philosophize. You see what he's saying there? If you refuse to think philosophically, that is in and of itself a philosophy. You have a philosophy of being anti-philosophy, which makes you a philosopher, just a bad one. Okay, so Paul's point is not that we should just throw all philosophy out the window. I think a story from church history might be helpful here. There's a man named Justin Martyr who, was, who lived in the second century, who before trusting in Christ, he actually tried all the different Greek schools of thought, skepticism, stoicism, um, Pythagoras had a philosophy, and it's about more than just math, okay? He tried all of these different philosophies. He test drove them all. But then there was an old man who shared Christ with him, and his heart was radically changed by the truth of the gospel. And here's what Justin wrote describing his personal testimony. He says, A fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. That is how and why I became a philosopher. And I wish that everyone felt the same way that I do. Justin would go on to call Christianity the true philosophy. And he dedicated his life to teaching and defending the faith. When Roman authorities demanded that he sacrifice to the gods and therefore deny Christ, deny his faith, he replied, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. And he was then beheaded for his faith in Christ, earning the surname Martyr. That's why we call him Justin Martyr. He spent his life promoting what he called the true philosophy and was willing to die for it. You see, Christianity is not the anti-philosophy. Rather, Christianity is the highest and purest and truest philosophy. The fear of the Lord, the scriptures tell us, is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the rejection of it. So Paul's not condemning philosophy in general. Rather, this is a warning against, get this, a certain kind of philosophy. The kind that denies or diminishes Christ. You see, the pursuit of truth 
if you are truly a philosopher, the pursuit of truth, it reaches its destination when we find Christ. The gospel is the grace of God in truth. It is in Christ where we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's not against philosophy, just against a certain kind of philosophy. Notice how he describes the Christless philosophy that was threatening the church. He describes it as being empty deceit in verse 8. Vacuous lies, lacking content, lacking any basis in truth, lacking power. These plausible arguments have no substance. And Paul says these other philosophies are deceitful. He's exposing the evil intent to hide and obscure the truth and sell the lie as truth. A pastor named S. Lewis Johnson once wrote, Truth is the object of philosophy, although it is not always the object of philosophers. That means we need to be careful. We need to be careful. This, This wrong philosophy, this dangerous philosophy, Paul describes it as being according to human tradition. And this is really the problem. This is really the problem, elevating human authority over and against the revelation of God. You see, the tradition that they had received was the gospel, the truth, like Justin says, of the prophets and men who know and love Christ. This is the tradition we have received, and it is not a merely human tradition like these empty, deceitful philosophies. We need to be careful not to elevate social and cultural traditions even academic and scholarly traditions, perhaps even religious traditions, above the truth of Christ. It is foolish and futile and leads only to spiritual captivity. Paul says that these empty philosophies, according to human tradition, are according to what he calls the elemental spirits of the world. And this can be kind of tricky. Some, some people think that Paul's referring here to the elements like wind and water and fire, that the, the Greek philosophers thought made up the whole universe, or perhaps to the, 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 the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars that many in that day associated with gods. They, they worshipped these gods that were represented in the stars and the constellations. The scripture tells us that such false gods are often demons, spiritual beings who are not to be worshipped. Paul says, don't buy into these philosophies that buy in to worshiping the creation or perhaps trying to see through the creation to all these different elemental spirits. He says, we have something better. Notice what he says. Not according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Look what he says in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, if there is no Christ in these arguments, if there's only human tradition, elemental spirits, as attractive and impressive as they may be, if there is no Christ in these arguments, these philosophies, these traditions, or if they put Christ in any other place than as supreme Lord of all, then they are false and inferior to the gospel that we have received because we have Christ who is better. Remember the point that Paul's driving home. Spiritual life is found only and always in Christ. So we must reject Christless deceptions that would enslave us. Paul motivates us to reject these philosophies by showing us the superiority of what we have received. The superiority of what we have experienced. 
as we have received Christ. What we have in Jesus is so much better than what all these empty philosophies offer us. In Christ, in him, verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he's better than all that other stuff. He is supreme. He's ultimate. And look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ, who's greater than all those elemental spirits. In him, the fullness of deity dwells, and we have been made full as we have received Christ. You see, Christ is the one, we see in verses 9 and 10, who completes us. The eternal God has been made flesh. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul already told us that in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here he tells us, in verse 9, that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's a, a reference here to both Christ's full divinity, that he is fully God, but also to his humanity. He is not a God who is far off, not a mystical God that, that cannot be touched or seen. He dwelt in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who was fully man even as he was fully God. And notice what Paul says. It's not that Jesus... Um, did dwell bodily, he says, presently is dwelling bodily. This is not just who Jesus was, but who Jesus is even now in his resurrection and ascension. He continues to be this amazing, uh, uh, this amazing union of the divine nature and, and, and humanity, God in flesh. And he's seated on the throne today at the right hand of the Father. And he says, not only does all of God dwell in Christ, but all of Christ dwells in us, the one who is the fullness of God makes us full. We share in his fullness. And the implication of this, get this, because this is important. This is Paul's logic here, is that everything you need is in Christ. If you are full, then you're not lacking. And what are we full of? Full of Christ. He dwells in us, the hope of glory. And in Christ is all the fullness of God. So what could we be lacking if all of God is, is something that we, through faith, are able to partake of. There's nothing lacking. All we need is found in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27 says he is in us. And we, by faith, as we see, are in him. Twelve times that reference to being in him. So there's this ongoing result of our union with Christ, that if we have him and he has us, then we have everything we need. I love what 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, that his, speaking of God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And Peter says he has granted these things to us. How? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. It was really sad. This is maybe a year or two ago. There was two Mormon missionaries who knocked on my door. Actually, I was working in the garage. They walked up to the garage, and they began conversing with me and talking with me, wanting to share their faith with me, and I was asking questions. I'm always interested to understand why people believe what they believe, and I wanted to know what their objective was, because at first they tried to talk to me, maybe you've had this experience, as if we were sort of on the same team, like, oh, great, you read the Bible, that's wonderful, you believe in Jesus, hey, we believe in Jesus too, but it's sort of one of those, like, Princess Bride, I don't think that means what you think it means, like, we are meaning different things here when we say Jesus and trusting in Jesus, they have a different view of that, and it was hard for me to draw that out of them, 
And eventually, I, I kind of grew almost impatient and said, listen, if you thought that we were on the same team, you wouldn't be here proselytizing me. So what is it that you think I'm missing? How can I be sure that I have eternal life? It's the question I asked them. And their answer had nothing to do with Christ. Their answer had everything to do with being baptized in the Mormon church, becoming a member of their church, doing all these good things that they said I needed to do that I would learn about in the Book of Mormon. And I took them to 1 Peter, chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, and said, you know what? The Bible tells me that I've been granted everything I need for life and godliness. And you're telling me something different. You're telling me I don't have everything I need. You're saying that I need something in addition to Christ. And that is simply not what the scripture authoritatively declares to us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If we have Christ, we have access to all the wisdom that we need, all the righteousness that God demands, access to all the sanctification that God desires to produce in us, and access to the redemption that we so desperately need. If we have Christ, we have it all, and there's not something more that we need in addition to Christ. And if you get tired of hearing me say that, you're going to get tired of reading the book of Colossians because this is the point. This is the point. Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual life is found only and always and we can add completely in Christ. If we have him, Paul says, we are complete. We've been filled. We're not lacking anything. Sadly, there are many today who do not believe this. They think we need Jesus plus something, whether they be Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or legalistic Christians who think you have to jump through all these hoops to add something to what Jesus did on the cross. But in Christ, Paul tells us we are complete and full. Jesus is everything we need. Jesus is bread for those who are hungry. Jesus is the living water for those who thirst. Jesus is light to those who walk in darkness. Jesus is the rescuer to those who are in bondage. Jesus is the resurrection and the life to those who are spiritually dead. Jesus is the way for those who are lost. Jesus is true riches for those who are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus is righteousness for those who are for those who cannot keep the law. Jesus is forgiveness to those who are guilty of sin. Jesus is a great high priest to those who need a representative. Jesus is rest to those who have a weary soul. Jesus is strength to those who are weak. Jesus is comfort to those who are lonely. Jesus is the shepherd to those who need to be led and fed and protected. If we have Jesus, we have all that we need. Do you know him? Do you have all of these things that scripture says are available to us in Christ? These are available to all who come and bow the knee and receive Jesus Christ as Lord. It is for you. It is for me. Do you know him? Do you? Because you need him. 
If you do not have Christ, then you are empty, you are lacking, you are incomplete. And you are not only missing out on the joy and life that God offers even now to his children, but you are also severely lacking and will be shown to be lacking when you stand before the judge one day. All of us will die. We will stand before a holy God. And unless you are made complete in Christ, unless you have the righteousness that Christ gives and the cleansing that comes through his blood, then you will be condemned and judged for eternity in hell. But if you have Christ, if you are found in him and he is in you, then you will be welcomed into the presence of the Lord because you lack nothing that is required. Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, brother to John Wesley, wrote these words, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. That's the song of those who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Spiritual life is found only and always in Christ, so we must renew a Christ-centered focus and reject Christless deceptions. This is what brings life and joy to us as individuals, but this is also what brings a peculiar kind of power to the church because we as the church are the stewards of this good news that Christ is all and Christ is ours through faith and we are complete in him and this is the message that the world needs we have the gospel let's make sure that Christ is what we are proclaiming we don't need to jump on the bandwagon of what the world is interested in what the world thinks is appealing what the world insists is important like Paul we proclaim Christ let's never move on from Christ only into a deeper dependence on Christ, into further growth in Christ, towards a stronger confidence in Christ, in whom we find all we need and in whom we are made complete. Father, as we open your word and we read it, I am, I am struck with the profound goodness and grace that you would offer yourself to us. You don't just give us good things, you give us yourself, and in you we find all we need. We thank you for Christ, for his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and all that you do in our hearts when we trust in him. We thank you for making us complete, filling our hearts and souls with life, granting us righteousness, adopting us into your family. Lord, we pray that you'd give us discernment, that as we grow in our faith, as we are established in the faith, as we are strengthened, that we would be able to detect and avoid the errors that plague the world, that plague the church, that plague even people that we love and know. God, help us not to be taken captive by any system of truth, any worldview, any philosophy, any, any theology that would diminish Christ. Give us a high view of Jesus and what he has done and strengthen our faith in him. And Lord, if there are some in our midst today who do not have Christ, if there are some here today who are looking for salvation, looking for joy, looking for freedom from their sin in something other than the finished work of Christ on the cross, I pray that today you would reveal to them that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. I pray, God, that you would draw sinners to yourself today and change their hearts. Bring them to the point where they might receive you as 
Lord, trusting in what Jesus did and submitting to him as their master. We pray that you would save sinners and strengthen believers for your glory. Amen.